0: Welcome to the Nutrition Reviews podcast series. Nutrition Reviews is published by Oxford University Press and is an international peer-reviewed journal that publishes authoritative and critical literature reviews on current and emerging topics in nutritional science, food science, clinical nutrition, and nutrition policy. Each month, we talk with authors who have contributed to Nutrition
1: Reviews to find out who they are, why they wrote the review, and how they think their review should be used to advance nutritional sciences. I'm Douglas Terran the Editor-in-Chief for Nutrition Reviews. I have the pleasure today to be speaking with Jamie Baum, who, with Sam Walker, who are at the University of Arkansas, wrote a narrative review on eggs as an affordable source of nutrients for adults and children living in food insecure environments. I found this article to be interesting for several reasons. First, research on the production and consumption of eggs to support the growth of children in low and middle income countries has recently increased, indicating their benefit on nutritional status. The extension of that work to determine if eggs can have a similar effect on food insecurity in the United States is important to know. This paper provides a wonderful historical perspective of research on eggs and health, uh, information about the economics of incorporating eggs into the household budget, and current knowledge about the relationship between the nutrients in eggs and Chronic Disease. And Dr. Baum, welcome to Conversations with the Authors. And let's start off by having you tell us about yourself. You're the director for the Center for Human Nutrition. And if you can tell us a little bit about the center and how it got started would be wonderful. Well,
0: thank you for recognizing this paper. And I have to just give accolades to Sam Walker, who was the master's student who initiated the review. I'm actually an associate professor at the University of Arkansas in the Department of Food Science, but I direct the Center for Human Nutrition, as it was mentioned within this department. And the Center for Human Nutrition, I think, came about in the late 90s as part of, I think, the Institute for Food Science and Engineering within the state, so it was a subsection of that. Um, and then, as you know, people leave jobs, people retire, and it kind of fell by the wayside, so I was asked to revitalize it about five or six years ago. So the Center for Human Nutrition, we actually do um, dietary interventions, but we range everything from molecule to man in the community outreach type research. My background is in dietary protein quality and quantity and the impact on chronic disease. Um, But within our center, we can do anything from eye tracking, 3D printing of food, behavior studies, to molecular analyses of muscle samples. So we've been growing um, and we're excited for the future. And research in eggs is actually what started to get us off the ground.
1: So what was it about eggs in particular that you and and Sam decided to to take on was, did you notice some gaps in the literature that needed to be reviewed or um, what was going on in your minds when you came up with this idea? So
0: I'll be honest, the first funding I received as an assistant professor was from the egg nutrition center and it wasn't really related to food insecurity. It was related to childhood obesity, um, energy metabolism and appetite. But once we saw just what adding two eggs for breakfast could do you know, in an acute setting for kids, um, that paper got a little bit of traction from an internal press release. And I was contacted by someone who was asked to actually do a project in Uganda looking at egg supplementation in children living in rural settings. So um, that's kind of what got us interested into eggs and food insecurity. We just saw in this study that supplementing with either one a hard-boiled egg per day or two hard-boiled eggs per day completely changed growth. So there was an increase in height and weight and arm circumference mid-upper arm circumference in these children Um, So after we did that study, we started to reflect on food insecurity in the United States. We like the University of Arkansas is located in an area where one in three children is student secure. Um, We're also the home of one of the country, the country's largest poultry production company. And we just started thinking about eggs, the cost of eggs, because I think we were in a big box store and noticed that you get three dozen eggs for like $5. And so we actually proposed a second study, um, but looking at egg supplementation and food insecure children in our region. And that's what brought us to writing this paper um, about eggs as an affordable source of the nutrients.
1: I think it's really interesting to hear from scientists like you, how you come up with these questions because you you brought in three or four factors of both research, but personal knowledge, you know, the environment yes. where you live to, to come up with the question about what you need to study. And I think it's important not to have that linear thinking to, to um, you know, have science progress. In, right. in your review, you cover food security issues and I'm not gonna um, focus so much on that today, but you cover lots of nutrients. And I'm just wondering if there's anything about eggs that you think consumers need to know more about um, than they do now?
0: Yeah, so actually, um, you know, whenever I talk about eggs, I still find a lot of people who have that mindset from, you know, the 80s and early 90s that eating eggs is, are bad for you, it will make your cholesterol go up. Um, so I still find there's a lot of misinformation about egg consumption. And people don't think about the other, you know, nutrients like vitamin D, um, choline, the bioactive components or the protein component of eggs. So um, I just find that's really interesting. And I I mean, we see it all the time now, but this was before social media, what role, you know, media can play on how we perceive, you know, certain foods and in our dietary patterns. So um, that's what I think is still interesting. I always use my parents as a sounding board. for some of these nutrition ideas because they're educated, but not in nutrition. And so I'm like, well, you know, and they're they're Facebook scrollers or social media scrollers. So I try to gauge, you know, what they say. And, you know, they were still telling me about eggs and that, no, we have high cholesterol, we can't eat eggs. So I said, you know, that's kind of been debunked a while now. So that's what I think it's taught me is that there's still a lot of misconceptions.
1: I'm wondering if um, they hear that from their clinician, if they have high cholesterol, do you think it's it's actually making its way throughout the medical practice about the changes in our concepts on on eggs? I I worked for a cardiologist as an undergraduate student uh, looking at defibrillation, so getting people out of heart attacks, which got me to say, I wanted to study nutrition to prevent the heart attacks. And I remember right. when ACE came out and all of a sudden he was going to stop eating ACE because he was a cardiologist and very health conscious. Um, but science changes over time. We learn things over right. time. So what was, you know, what we thought was factual you know, 30 years ago, we learn things that are different. We peel off the onion you know, peels and you start looking inside more and you understand, well, why were those associations identified without controlling for other factors?
0: Right. Yeah and I think um I mean part of it I think is that you know a lot of medical professionals don't have to have formal nutrition training if any nutrition training at all. Um, So I think it's also I think generational so I know even undergraduate students that I have come do you know research rotations within my laboratory depending on who their professor is and what they heard growing up they may still be getting you know, poor information or misinformation about like the role of eggs in the diet. So they could be hearing it. I just think they it's not talked about because there's not a sensational headline there. So I think they just heard it once and then kept it. So Um,
1: before we started the podcast um, recording today, you told me you Mm -hmm. have a child. So I'm wondering if your research has changed your perception of eating eggs within your own household?
0: So yes, I also am the mother of um, a picky eater. (laughs) So um, who doesn't understand that chocolate is not a major food group, but um, it does. I think, you know, when I first started um, looking at this, the eggs, especially with children, we did start incorporating it in his diet. Especially, I mean, I'm interested in, you know, breakfast and staying fuller longer and attention during school, things I never, ever, ever thought about really before I had a child. And so now I will say like one of his favorite breakfasts is an egg sandwich,
1: so. So it's really interesting about how you've incorporated eggs into your household. So I'm now wondering, um, what do you think other researchers should take from this review? Um, as far as research goes? Are there things that you think need to be studied? And then you can tell us a little bit about what you plan to do next.
0: So I do think, obviously it's the whole diet, what we eat impacts our health, but I think really until moving to Arkansas, because I've never you know, really lived in the South or um, been exposed or like knowingly exposed to such high levels of food insecurity in our own country, and then also while recruiting for clinical trials that don't necessarily focus on food insecurity, I think it's something that people need to think about when designing research studies or dietary interventions. Um, thinking about like, what is the access to food you know, at home or what are our participants, um, you know, what is their food security status because that can really impact their nutrition status and their, their responsiveness to the different diets. And I think, you know, eggs are often overlooked as, you know, a dietary intervention tool. Um, I mean, I guess one challenge with eggs at least in our country is that they have to be refrigerated but, you know, across the world in many countries eggs do not have to be refrigerated. That's what made them a perfect protein source to study um, when we were doing the study in Uganda. So I think you're know, just thinking about you know, a dietary intervention that is affordable, that can be implemented by most people who have a refrigerator and some sort of cooking or heat, heat supply. Um, and thinking about those things when we design interventions like diets and foods that can be accessible to all or most, most people. That's what sort of made my it changed my entire way of thinking about how I do dietary interventions and thinking about my population.
1: What, what do you yeah. think you're going to be doing next? Are you going to keep studying eggs? or are you moving on to other types of research projects? You are the director of a big center. So there's sure lots of opportunities that you have available to yourself.
0: Right. So, I mean, I do, my history is in dietary protein, um, body composition, muscle functions. So that will definitely see, continue to be a role, but I do have a 25% outreach appointment with extension. So during, which I hadn't really thought much about in terms of research, but then during the pandemic, I would say if you had asked me this question two years ago, I would have continued following up on eggs as a reg, maybe as a source of complete protein for regulation of appetite, muscle health, things like that. Um, but now the one thing this writing this paper and thinking about eggs in terms of food insecurity has thought of is, you know, when we, we did a survey before starting this research about how people perceive Protein from lower. Inc- we went to a free healthcare fair that was local and just asked people their perceptions of protein and people think it's, you know, good for you but really expensive or not accessible to them. Um so sometimes I think that my research is a really first world problem, how to increase animal sources of protein, you know, to increase muscle mass. So I think you know during the pandemic, we couldn't come into the lab at the initial parts of the pandemic and I had to rethink everything. I actually increased the outreach part of my research. So we designed an 18 month, um, I guess, choose your own adventure program on educating people on nutrition, health, physical activity, well-being, and behavior change through personalized coaching, YouTube channel, web weekly educational sessions, just to bring people up to baseline nutrition and physical activity knowledge. So that's something I never thought would take off, but got a lot of traction within our state. So that's one place we're going. I started getting interested in 3D printing of food because you don't need IRB approval to practice 3D printing and you don't need you know, bodily fluids. So we're working on using, you know, different sources of protein to create personalized food products to meet different um, dietary needs and different disease states. So that's another thing where totally different than molecular mechanisms of muscle regulation. So those are sort of some of the outside of the box things that we're doing um, in the future, in addition to the traditional work that I've worked on, on protein quality and quantity.
1: Dr. So, Baum, yeah. this is really interesting. The variety of, of projects that you have that still relate to protein in different ways right. uh, really shows your, your strength in this area of research. I really appreciate <laughs> you know, having you take this time to speak with me, and I wish you the best in your future research.
0: Okay. Thank you.
1: Next month, I will be speaking with Christina Peterson from Texas Tech University, who was the senior author with colleagues from Pennsylvania State University, as they conducted a review of human clinical trials on the effect that herbs and spices have on risk factors for cardiometabolic diseases. I enjoyed reading this paper and found it valuable because I like lots of herbs and spices in my meals. And now I know more about how they may benefit blood lipid levels, glycemic control, blood pressure, adiposity, inflammation, and oxidative stress, but with the caveat that there is still a very limited number of randomized clinical trials on how these spices and herbs affect health in the quantities that are used in cooking. I strongly recommend reading this review to learn more about turmeric, cinnamon, ginger, red pepper, fenugreek, saffron, black pepper, cumin, coriander, and the herbs dill, oregano, sage, parsley, and Russian tarragon. Reading this paper will get your taste buds ready for a great meal. The Nutrition Reviews podcast was produced and edited by Eric Healy at the Western Region Public Health Training Center studio at the University of Arizona, Mel and Enid Zuckerman College of Public Health. Original music was created by Eli Ruiz. Funding for the podcast was provided by the International Life Sciences Institute. To get more updated information on nutrition, go to the journal's website at academic.oup.com slash nutritionreviews and subscribe to the podcast to be notified when the next episode is available. I'm Douglas Taron. Thank you for spending some time with us.